Hello, I'm Ariet Sneeman. Welcome to Calm, Clear and Helpful, a weekly podcast series on taking good care of yourself and others. Introducing you to a wide range of wellness professionals ready to inform and inspire. Today's topic is the Enneagram for couples. Understand yourself and your beloved. My guest is Renier Cronier, transformational coach and mentor for inner well-being from Cape Town. Welcome, Renier. Good day, Mariet, and thank you very much. Lovely to be here. To our listeners, after our conversation, Renier will give us his three tips for inner well-being, and then it will be fun question time. Renier, you have a long history of supporting individuals to cultivate mental and emotional well-being and resilience. Could you please tell us what you do? Thank you, Mariette. As a transformational coach, in essence, I help people to train their minds to be kinder with themselves and other people to have a better quality life. And that despite all the ups and downs of life. So... I think most of us and most of you might recognize that if you are just left on your own to your own thoughts and own feelings, it can quite often create inner strain and dissatisfaction and, and suffering. So what I support people with is to create the, the shifts to more inner well-being, to embody more mental and emotional resilience. And what if I may say right now in the beginning, so my my approach is not to not to fix anyone or improve anyone. It's it's an invitation to wholeness. So, where everyone is striving um, and trying to do more, my approach is quite counterintuitive, helping people to relax more into well-being, kind of more a letting go and allowing who you already are, versus trying to become more or to fix who you are. Mm. That sounds like a wonderful invitation. You've been working with the Enneagram for many years. Could you tell us what the Enneagram is? So the Enneagram is a personality system that represents nine different motivational drives. It's a really powerful tool for personal growth and transformation. So I know I'm biased here, but it, the Enneagram really is a, a lot more than you know, just a personality system. So it almost feels like I'm not doing it justice. So that's why the emphasis on the, the growth and transformation. But quickly, just some background. Enneagram comes from the Greek word. Enya means nine and gram means that which is written or drawn. So the word Enneagram refers to a diagram or system representing nine points. So quite interestingly, it has ancient roots. So already hundreds and thousands of years ago, people have notice certain patterns within human behavior and the Enneagram as we use it today has been developed in the psychological Western psychological world roughly the past 60 years. And I'd like to also you know keep everyone just at peace, those who are afraid that you know I want I want to box them. So the idea of the Enneagram is not to put you in a box. Yes, it represents nine different motivational drives, nine different archetypes. But rather than putting in a box, the intention is to actually help you become aware of what box has your ego, your persona, kept you in. And to be 
more dramatic. What is the mental prison that, that you live in? And this is, you know, completely unconscious. So I said nine different motivational drives. You can think of it in terms of nine different brain patterns. It's literally nine different ways of interpreting reality. It's nine different ways of looking at the world. I mean, all of you, oh, we're talking about relationships today. She might have noticed sometimes even in frustration or fear or sadness that your partner doesn't see things the same way as you do. Um, I don't know, Marit, has that ever happened to you? What do you mean? <laughs> Asking whether it has ever happened to me. <laughs> so immediately here is one of the gifts of the Enneagram. It's really just normalizing reality, the fact that we have different ways of looking. And even as two individuals, Marit, we look, we look at the same reality and our brains form a completely different picture you know, with, within us. And, and, and that's also why my approach focuses on inner well-being because at the end of the day, even in a relationship, we are dealing with the perceptions that forms within us. And whatever my brain perceives then leads to the kind of thoughts and feelings about myself and also about the other person. So very importantly also, around these nine different patterns, also connected to help connect it with the brain, it represents nine survival needs. So looking at the subconscious world, there's a pattern, a motivational drive working behind all my behavior that I associate with my survival. So when this when this motivational pattern can can flow, I feel things in my world are okay, I will survive. When it is not in play, when things do not work according to my motivational drive, then the fight or flight of my brain is triggered. Things are not okay. Um, you have to change something. You're not going to survive. And and right there is also a clue of how valuable the Enneagram can be to reveal, listen, you know, these are the things that will trigger you. Because I think I didn't mention how very important of these nine motivational drives, there is only one that forms the motivation drive behind your behavior. Yes, you and I, we have behavior of all nine types, but in terms of what drives it, um, in the subconscious world, there is, there is only one. And then linking it further to the topic of today, relationships, another way to look at these nine patterns is to say it's nine different styles of blocking love. To the extent I'm entangled with my motivational drive, I am actually blocking the experience of love. And I can you know, maybe expand on that a bit more later on. But the most important thing, there are these nine motivational drives. It's not right or wrong. It's we were born with this pattern. And this pattern has served you in your childhood to help you survive in this world. And now we're going into our adult life. And it's now to discern, okay, to what extent is this pattern serving me and to what extent is it not serving me? And as I said earlier, if, you, if you're just being yourself, if you're just um, playing with your pattern, it's guaranteed it will create strain, it will create suffering, it will create lack of well-being in your life. Mariette, is that, is, is that enough to start with? Oh, that's fascinating. I already have many questions. Excellent. <laughs> 
The first one is, Renir, what makes the Enneagram different from other personality assessments? Okay, that, that, that is quite an important question, Mariette. And I already kind of gave a clue with the, with the words motivational drive. Most personality assessments measure behavior, where the Enneagram looks at the motivation behind the behavior. So if you imagine an iceberg, so above the surface, I don't know if it's one-eighth or one-tenth, but it's a very small percentage of the iceberg size is revealed above the surface of the ocean. So think of that piece, small piece of the iceberg above the surface as your behavior. That is what people can see. The people look at you and they, they think you're this and you're that and you do this and you like this and so forth. But that whole iceberg below what is invisible to other people, that, is, that represents the Enneagram top. What is your motivational drive behind the behavior that people see? So a normal personality assessment can maybe reveal that, oh, you're a perfectionist because you have lots of perfectionistic behavior. Now, the Enneagram looks at that same perfectionistic behavior and asks, but why do you do things in a perfectionistic way? So it could be that you do things in a perfectionistic way because through that you will help others better. Or maybe having things perfectly aligned, you feel more in control. Or maybe that's your strategy to achieve more in life or to get more certainty, or to maintain harmony. Right, yeah, I just right there gave a handful of different motivational drives. So in that sense, the Enneagram is a powerful mirror for self-awareness. And the good news, it's not only a mirror for self-awareness, it also then provides a map for your inner world and to say, hey, what is the best thing for you to do now to manage this motivational drive in a constructive, wholesome way? to live a more balanced or a happier life, to put it like that. Yes, I really appreciate the example you mentioned of the perfectionistic behavior, which comes from different drives, because I mm. think it, it puts it in a completely different framework, if you look at it that way. Yeah, absolutely. And because we, it's so easy to look at other people and you think, oh, I know you know, he's a this or she's a that, and we put people in boxes, but actually we don't know what's happening behind it. And to put it in perspective, I've quite often been, in terms of the Enneagram, been wrong about people quite close to me. Because as humans, we can only see the behavior of other people. We do not know what's behind the surface. Mm. And even for us as individuals, it can be quite a journey to actually get in contact with, okay, what is my main motivational drive? Because kind of the purpose of the ego is it's there to help your survival. And part of that survival strategy is to keep this pattern unconscious also from yourself. So so we, we're throwing a light here on your inner world and maybe also disclaimer right here. So quite often the Enneagram can actually make you feel worse at first. Mm. Um, it's, it's not one of those systems that, oh, wow, I've got these strengths and it's fantastic. And it's almost like when you, when you really get this, it could be like, you know, someone's like hit you in the gut. Uh, but the good news, you know, they say, yeah, the truth, you know, before it sets you free, it will first make you miserable. Mm. 
but the intent, the bigger intent is personal liberation, freer way of living individually and also in relationship. Mm. Yeah, because I would say that the definition of growth includes leaving your comfort zone. So I think what you say makes a lot of sense. Uh, Renier, even though the Enneagram is such a complex system with many applications, you have mentioned the nine drives. Could you give us a run over of these nine numbers, please? Yeah, thank you, Mariette. It's a, you know, let's break the anticipation and get a ride into them. So as you said, the motivational drive and to remember as I go through the, the nine drives that it's also linked to your survival need in, in this world. It's your survival drive as you go through life. So I'm going to just start at number one. Okay, maybe just a quick extra note. If you do research on the Enneagram, on the internet, there are many different names for the numbers. What's important, the energy, the drive for each number never changes. It's just that different people give different names for it. So see if I, I start here with number one. And number one is called the strict perfectionist or the reformer. So the number one drive is the drive to be a good person, someone who does the right thing. And as I live with this drive in life, being a good person, I have to avoid making mistakes. I have to avoid being wrong. Now, this is applicable to all numbers that, no one specifically likes to make mistakes or being wrong, but for this number one drive, their identity and survival need is connected to doing things the right way. So it's like literally when they are accused of making a mistake or when they feel that they are doing something not perfectly or not good, that their fight and flight system is triggered in, in their system. So for the number one drive, Making a mistake or being accused of wrong is like psychologically the, the end of their world. And that is kind of the same trigger mechanism that plays out with every other number, but just in a, the drive is just focused on something else. So the number two drive is the considerate helper. So it's the drive to, to help others. And how do I maintain this drive to help other people? I have to avoid my own needs, I have to avoid my own hurts because that would distract me and then I can't help others. So I will just continue helping other people. The number three is the competitive achiever. Now, this is the drive to be successful. Uh, this is a drive we see quite often also in the, in the corporate world. It's I must win, I must achieve, it's being very effective. And to maintain this drive, I need to avoid failure at all costs. So I have to be useful. You know, this is, I, I can't just sit still and, and do nothing. I must be busy. I must be busy winning. The number four drive is the individualist or the intense creative. And this is a drive to be unique and significant in this world. It's like, I feel okay. I will survive as long as I can express myself in an authentic, unique way. So while I'm doing this, I will also, I have to avoid anything mundane because otherwise I won't survive in this world. The Enneagram 5, the quiet specialist or the investigator. 
So this is a drive to understand things, to be knowledgeable, and to understand things and to investigate it in depth. I have to avoid not knowing things and understanding things at all costs. So very cerebral, I must know, I'm, I must understand. The number six, it's the loyal skeptic. And this is a drive for safety, a drive for certainty. If only I can get enough a sense of safety, have enough certainty, as long as I can safely belong in a group, then I will be okay. So to, to maintain this drive, for safety and looking for certainty, I also have to avoid risk and I have to avoid uncertainty at all costs. So now you've already seen up to number six that there's a tendency to being attached to life being in a certain way. So you can already see, and it's quite evident, that life doesn't always play out according to just one drive. There are moments of all of these, but there's never a time when consistently everything happens according to this one pattern. So just a small clue as I go on to number seven. So the number seven is the enthusiastic vision. So here there's this, it's this drive for pleasure and having exciting options. Um, there must always be stimulation. So the glass is always half full and to maintain this drive, I have to, at all costs, avoid discomfort. I must avoid pain. I must avoid boredom. Because why? If I have an experience discomfort or pain or boredom, it will actually be a threat to my survival. So I will just block it out and avoid it at all costs. And as we know, life isn't always just pleasure, isn't always only exciting, isn't always full of options and always stimulating. So this drive, although there's nothing wrong with it, if I'm only attached to this one drive and life being like this all the time, it does create strain. It does create suffering. Going on to number eight. Number eight is the active controller or it is the challenger. And it's the drive to be strong and in control. I must be strong. I must be in control. And in this quest for strength and being in control, I will avoid all weakness and I will never show any vulnerability. Because if I show vulnerability, then you know people will not see me as strong and in control. And the last drive, the adaptive peacemaker, it's the drive to maintain harmony. It's the, the need to be settled and having things at ease, just wanting everything to be at peace and harmonious. And how do I maintain the sense of harmony and ease? I have to avoid conflict. I can't have my own agenda in life because then that might create conflict with, with other people or other groups. So in a way, I have to forget about myself to, to maintain harmony. So, Marie, this was a quick, quick rundown through the nine drives. Any questions from your side regarding it? I'm curious about them all, but thank you very much. And I'd just like to mention that we'll include a summary of the nine numbers in the podcast notes, which I've got from your website. So we'll include that summary. Awesome. But, Renier, how does one determine one's Enneagram type? 
But here's you know, once again a good question. So uh, I work with it in, in, in two ways. I, on the one hand, work with an assessment. So all my private clients, you know, individual private clients or with companies, we work with an assessment that is approximately 95% accurate. And just to mention, the most, most of the tests on the internet are not accurate. So people are welcome to go on the internet. And there's a lot of free tests, but don't count on it. But all of these tests, use it as data points in your inquiry dis- discovery journey. So, so that's the one option, using an official and credible assessment. And what I also work with is the narrative approach. So I live in Stellenbosch uh, contemplative community in VIA. So with them, we present an Enneagram course a few times a year. That for, for over two weekends, we, we sit a group of 10, 11 people and we talk through all the numbers and we inquire within and sitting in the circle and talking through the numbers and reflecting on our lives, people start landing in certain numbers. As as we ask the question why, as we you know as we spoke about the example of perfectionism, they will share about their behavior and then we go into the why. Now are you doing it to keep more peace, to be more in control, to obtain more knowledge? And through many questioning, people then land in the number, or, or they still live with, okay, I'm definitely one, these two numbers, and then there's a further inquiry after it. So, so the, sh- the short answer, you, you, can, you can do an assessment, but traditionally, it's been like a long process of self-inquiry, and I think it's very important to say that all the value of the Enneagram lies in you reflecting and engaging with the content. Just doing an assessment and getting a report it's not going to lead to any transformation. It's you actually, once you find your type, the inner work only starts. That's the inner work we say is it's the first layer of the onion being peeled, but there's still many other onion layers to be revealed. Right. And when you know your type and you start with the inner work, how is this knowledge beneficial? Let's first look at an individual level? How is it beneficial on an individual level? I think the, the most important starting point is self-compassion. Although it can be quite revealing the Enneagram and almost you're feeling naked, you know, people should, actually people should not know this about me, you know, my survival strategy is this and that. And, and it's almost like, we we all have this hidden agenda in in the way way we live and actually also how what we expect from other people and how we try to manipulate and control other people. So suddenly your your plan is exposed. But if you can just stay behind that, to look at yourself with compassion and looking back like all the pain and hurt and frustrations and challenges you've experienced in your life, you can actually link to your drive. Because Certain, um, let's let's say the the number eight, the active controller. They're all about being strong and in control. They don't really care about criticism. They're strong and in control. You know, so you can criticize them, and they might not even hear you, and they don't care about it. Where the the number one drive, which is the perfectionist, the reformer, is being a good person. Criticize the number one, and you threaten their whole motivational drive. So let's say you are this perfectionist and your whole drive is bubbling right, now you can meet yourself with kindness. Oh, my word, 
me being so hard on myself and hating criticism and never feeling good enough, that is part of my motivational drive. So with the self-compassion comes the normalizing. Um, what I'm struggling with, and I'm so different from other people. Other people are not struggling with this. You can look at yourself and say, okay, oh, it's nothing wrong with me. Um, whatever challenges I have is actually linked to my motivational drive, and that's okay. And, and that is very important to point out. Every number has their own battles, their own struggles. Yeah, you know, different types might be, have different levels of vulnerability and being open about it, but every pattern has its own difficulty. So there's no one, although, although it's numbered from one to nine, no one is better than the other one, or no one has it easier or, <laughs> easier or lighter than the other one. So, you know, continuing on the individual level, it is empowering. It's just from a basic place of common sense, what you're not aware of, you cannot manage. So you're the Enneagram that throws off this mirror, and there you're standing naked to a certain extent, and it's terrifying, but as you can get used to it, like, oh my word, this is the package I need to deal with in life. So it helps you to form a, a grounded and balanced perspective of yourself. Because quite there's, there are a few drives that tend to think too little of themselves, and there are other drives that tend to think too much about themselves. So here it's to have a balanced perspective. I have strengths, I have weaknesses, and I have blind spots. And how can I journey with this now in the most wholesome way in terms of my own well-being, in terms of the conversations I have with myself? What do I need to adjust? How can I, how can I adjust my self-talk and patterns of thinking to be kinder to myself? What is important for me for my well-being? Because each of the nine motivational drives throws you off balance in a, in a different way. So in terms of personal well-being, Okay, what is it that I need to focus on? And I, I use the number one as a focus of the perfectionist and having this very strict inner critique, being so hard on yourself. Okay, this is kind of part of the thorn in my flesh in life that I need to navigate. How do I manage that responsibly that this critical voice doesn't dominate and hijack my experience of life and neither that, that it will hijack my relationships? So as you learn it, you become also more effective in your communication, relationships, and then very importantly, individually, it is a tool for personal transformation. It is to ultimately see that this pattern, this motivational drive, that leads to a certain pattern of thinking, feeling, and doing is very limited. And this pattern actually doesn't define me. There's actually eight other perspectives also flowing in this universe. There's eight other patterns of energy flow. And if I'm, to the extent I'm attached and identified with my pattern, I will always be limited. And I will never be able to live my full potential. I will never be able to enjoy and live life to the full. So it's usually from um, you know, mid-30s and onward. You might be wondering, oh, when, is, when is a good time to work with the Enneagram? But normally in this beginning, in the, in the younger stages of life, you're not ready to let go of your ego or to, or to be challenged in certain ways. But from mid-30s and older, most of us have realized, hmm, my way of doing maybe isn't always the right way or isn't always the most wholesome way. And 
it's usually, you know, through some disappointments in your career or maybe you've already been through divorce or major challenges in your relationship. But there's, as we get older, there's this, and if you're really honest with yourself, hmm, okay, maybe you think you're okay, but hey, people just disappear out of your life. You know, you, um, okay, maybe my pattern has to do something with it. Or why am I constantly miserable or sad or unhappy? Okay, maybe there is something that I can change. And quite often, this can be linked to your Enneagram motivational drop. That sounds very helpful. And that leads to me to my next question. How can the knowledge of your Enneagram drive be beneficial on a relational level? Marit, in the you know, relationships that this work really becomes alive, because it's, it's quite often when you're on your own, you can see your patterns and you can do this work and you can be in conversation with other people. But it's the people closest to us that trigger all our buttons. You know, they they, they press the, the wrong buttons, as we as we say. And I think the first thing, just as I said, individually, how it helps with self compassion, also as a couple, to to help with self compassion for the two of us, because every couple then also now has a strength, a set of strengths and weaknesses and struggles and challenges. And it's so easy to compare yourself with, with other couples and they look so happy and it looks like they've got it together. And we all know social media is just a disaster. Just don't look at any couple or family pictures on social media because <laughs> most of the time you will feel <laughs> inferior when you see the happy family pick, you know, on a, on a vacation somewhere and you've got no ideas of all the conflicts and stress and strain that might have played out just a few hours earlier. Mm. So self-compassion and the word normalizing, normalizing your patterns because your patterns will lead to certain conflicts. As I said earlier, your, your motivational drive, your brain connects to your survival. And that's also the way you experience survival. You also connect to love so as long as you do things my way i feel loved and i feel okay and when i feel what your way is a threat to my survival then i'm gonna i'm gonna feel unloved or i'm gonna feel unhappy so it's it's very important to normalize it you will trigger one another it is completely normal and very important and it's maybe highly inconvenient it is impossible for your personalities to make each other happy. While both are fully identified with their personalities, you can't make one another happy because each personality is, in a sense, like a little entitled child. You have to do things my way for me to feel loved and be with you. And then what's happening unconsciously is that we try to control and manipulate the other person to understand us better and to do things more our way to get to a point where we will feel loved, more loved, more respected, more safe. So once you can see it, that the drives actually at times, you know, will pull in different directions, it's to say, hey, this is normal. Uh, we're a couple, we're a relationship, and times it doesn't feel like the person loves me and that is okay 
that is normal. So once both of you can see it and you have this language, now you can start having conversations around it. Okay, um, when you do this, this is, this is the impact on me. And if both can see it's normal, there's the potential of having a conversation without feeling threatened. But that is, but that is um, very difficult and does require high levels of maturity and mindfulness on, on, on both parts. Yo, maybe just to kind of quickly recap, the Enneagram represents nine different perspectives. So if you can see, whoa, just realizing my perspective is not the only perspective. Right there, that's liberating. Okay, I don't understand my partner right now. Or right now, my partner doesn't understand me. And that is okay. Because it's just normal for us. And the more we are triggered, and especially the more we are stressed, the more we are identified about being right. Because like inside of us, there's like this inner child that is in panic. I'm not going to survive. And now I have to fight or be combative or be defensive. You know, to protect myself or prove myself. And once you can see that and also even have compassion for the stressful little child inside of you or the one in your partner, then it opens up a different way of, hey, this is what's happening. Well, let's take a half an hour break and continue the conversation. But we can meet one another with kindness without having to make the other person wrong. And once again, that is very difficult. And maybe the most important thing of today and regarding relationships, it's love and being right doesn't go well together. Mm. As long as I'm attached to, I have to prove my perspective as right. As long as I have to prove, or as long as I'm attached to, you must agree with me. And only once you agree with me as to how wrong you were or well, only once you agree to how much you have hurt me, then, you know, I will, I, will, I will feel okay and then I will feel loved or then I'll be ready to move on. So, so there's behind that, all of us have a kind of self-righteousness, to, to put it bluntly. Like, oh, on some level, I know better. You know, I've never hurt you so much as you have hurt me now. So there's always this, this ego wants to be right at all costs and looking out for that. So just so stepping away from that, it's actually quite humbling. And in that sense, the Enneagram is quite humbling to see. Listen here, you are two people here with hidden agendas, with different motivations, pulling in different directions. And maybe this is now an opportunity to stop taking things personally. Because maybe you're just doing something in your normal way that is completely normal according to your worldview and drive. And now I'm taking it personal. Maybe you did it to hurt me. You know, of, of course, you could have tried harder. You know, you know, you know what I like and you, you know what's good for me. Now, why did you do it like that? Or why didn't you say this? Or it's, it's so easy for us to you know, attach rejection to something else our partner does. And once again, the, the normalizing, the sense making that. Huh. You are supposed to trigger one another. If either of you or just yourself, you know, at different times you will feel rejected. So I'm aware it's, it sounds like I'm giving like a lot of negative negative news, but it's on on some level, it is so important for any person to get in a relationship that 
you know, that other person is not there to make me happy. That um, I am not happy, and now you must do this and this and this for me to be happy. Happy relationships are people who are already happy. And <laughs> and therefore, <laughs> the the importance of the inner work and why I always focus on the individual inner work first because we constantly live in our projections. The nature of the mind is to measure and judge. You're not good enough. I'm not good enough. Why are you doing this? You could have done that better. Blah, 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 blah. So to the, in terms of our inner work, it's so important that we own all our self-judgments and the things in ourselves that we are unhappy with. Because it's only once we can really accept ourselves, warts and all, when we can really be kind with ourselves unconditionally, can we start really opening to the love that is already there with our partner, ready to love them as they are and not as we wish them to be. Oh, there's such a lot of things you say that resonate with me. <laughs> I think you've laid a beautiful, some beautiful groundwork here for inner growth. And now we're going to find out more about this specific tool which helps us. I know previously you mentioned that when one looks at the Enneagram, the centers of expression or intelligence are involved. Could you tell us about the different centers of expression, please? Sure, Marihet. You know, there are three types of intelligence associated with the centers of expression, and that is action, thinking, and feeling. So let me share from the perspective of your Enneagram drive, from your personality or ego. And you know, when I say personality, ego, Enneagram drive, I use that terms all synonymously. So there are three different needs. Your thinking side has certain needs and your action part has certain needs and your feeling part has certain needs. And that, these are linked to different parts of your brain. So the, the thinking part, wants guidance and security. It tends to be future-orientated. Will I have enough to survive? You know, will I be okay in the future? Will I be safe? So what is the need here? When your thinking world, when your personality doesn't feel safe, what happens? Anxiety is triggered. Fear is triggered. And then the ego goes, oh, I must do something about this. So then I go out in the world and I try to create security. I try to create certainty. But that is not possible. Absolute security, absolute certainty cannot be created. Life is the impermanence of nature, the impermanence of life that is flowing all the time. So the more I then almost neurotically, neurotically go and try to get certainty, the more my anxiety and fear gets. So that is the the thinking part, as long as I'm identified with my motivation or drive. The action part, the action part of my brain is connected to control. I want autonomy and you shall respect me. And it is present orientated. I want control in this moment. And there are different ways of how I will exercise control. And if I lose my sense of control, I'll get angry or irritated or maybe even passive-aggressive. So when I don't have control, I will go find a way to somehow give myself the illusion of control. And lastly, the, the feeling side 
The feeling side is all about the need for acceptance. I want people to like me and love me for who I am. And then the ego on a deep level actually believes, actually no one will love me for who I am. And because I'm unlovable, I'm feeling shame. I'm not worthy of love. So now I go out into the world and I try to get love. I try to prove myself as worthy of love. Now, so these three centers are also linked with the Enneagram. It happens that you know, number eight, nine, and one are linked more to the action center, and number two, three, and four are linked more to the feeling center, and number five, six, and seven more to the thinking center. And what that means is we all have the thinking, action, and feeling, but for the the Enneagram drives in the thinking category. So that's the quiet specialist and the loyal skeptic and the enthusiastic visionary. Their ego structure, their motivational drives are also mostly hijacked by their thinking or said differently, their motivational drive actually hijacks their thinking in a way that takes it away from this present moment of life. They are so identified with their thinking way more than the, the groups that are connected to the action or the feeling. So the number eight, the active controller, the peacemaker, and the perfectionist, the reformer, they're all connected more to action. So they are more orientated towards controlling the moment. And once again, in terms of in, in what area does the eight, nine, and one have the least amount of freedom? It's in the area of action because they drive is continually saying, you must, you must be in control in this moment and find a strategy for it. And, and lastly, the number two helper, the number three achiever, and the number four individualist, the intense creative, they are connected to the feeling side mostly. So, so where they get hijacked the most is, what do I need to do to be loved? What do I need to do to be liked? Just to summarize, where all of us, we have these three centers and we all need guidance and security. We all need control. We all have a need for acceptance. But each of these centers have a greater influence over specific numbers. And as I just split them up now in, in three groups. And most of the time, while one is hijacked by your, your Enneagram type, you usually have two of these centers that are dominant and one that is that is quite weak. But even if you step away from the Enneagram, just being aware of the need for security, the need for control, the need for acceptance, it also opens up a, a nice conversation, you know, with, with a couple to see, okay, if one of you are dominant in feeling, then the need for acceptance and physical touch will be much higher than someone who's dominant in thinking and they find their satisfaction in life just through facts and you know accumulating enough facts to be secure. So if, if you have that awareness, it already creates a lot of sense-making as to why you are actually missing one another's needs or why, why are both of you feeling, oh, the other one doesn't understand me or the other one doesn't love me. That's very sensible, if one listens to it that way. And then you've mentioned the word inquiry. Could you tell us more about the context for inquiry? Now, I 
refer to the Enneagram as a tool. And it is so important to remember it's just a tool. So <laughs> no matter how amazing it is, it's, it's important to, to hold it lightly. And also any tool, it can be used in a harmful way and it can be used in a wholesome way. So quite, quite often happens on a, on a growth journey is that now you learn a lot more and it gets hijacked by your ego and now you have more information to judge yourself more or you have more information to judge others with. <laughs> and that is definitely not the idea of any growth path. So the Enneagram, I highly recommend it to use it with the, the, the lens of mindfulness. Because the, the nature of our minds are to measure, to judge, to be dissatisfied. This, this is kind of a cyclical pattern that happens for all of us. And mindfulness, and with that I mean it's being present to this moment of life with curiosity and kindness. So instead of measuring and judging myself and measuring and judging my partner, I consciously cultivate a different state of mind, a different habit of mind. I'm choosing to be present in this moment, being curious like a scientist with a lab coat. Not, I'm entitled and so right, knowing that you you were wrong and that's why you did it and you wanted to hurt me, blah, blah, blah. You know, that whole entitled story, victim story, stepping back from it all. Even seeing then your victim story, oh, Oh, I see. I have a massive victim story here. That's right. I interpreted your words, your behavior, that you don't love me. Actually, you were just busy with things that were exciting for you, and I took it all personally, and it wasn't your intention. Now, wh why did you do it like that? So to the extent that both of you can step back from being right, step back from your patterns, and just being curious and kind, you're on a very healthy path or let's just say it's, it's a lot easier that way because while we are judging our partner we actually break connection and it's quite often because some people are more assertive and, and, and aggressive and it's, it's easy to then blame the more aggressive personalities oh you know you're bad you don't you don't love me or you reject me but What's quite often missed is that you're, let's just say, the people-pleasing people, the nice people, and, and I also identify with that. Like behind the smile, behind everything's okay, resentment builds up. Because, um, and I just try to do the right thing and, and being the nicer person. But the moment I judge my partner, I actually disconnect inside. And I withdraw inside. And they also pick, pick up on that. So I'm blaming my partner for rejecting me or hurting me. But actually, through my own interpretation, I'm rejecting them. Because actually, through my interpretation, the story I made up in my mind, I decided, no, no, she judged me. She, she hurt me. She didn't love me. Now I withdraw inside to protect myself. So back to mindfulness. So mindfulness is a different way of being. It's a different way of looking. And you can also incorporate it with, with any other spiritual practice, whether you're religious or spiritual, alternative, or even have a secular spirituality. But the importance is to cultivate a new way of looking that is grounded in the humility that all my thoughts and feelings cannot be trusted. 
there are patterns that run through my mind, and maybe they don't always reflect the truth of reality, either of myself and not of my partner. And practicing mindfulness is for me is a, the key to mental and emotional well-being, and then also laying a solid foundation for a healthy relationship and also constructive communication. Because challenges do happen, conflict does happen. So it's not to create like an you know artificial fantasy here. It's okay. The conflict is here. The difficulty is here. How do we relate to this? How do we deal with this? Can we remain kind? It's the most difficult thing under the sun. It's so simple to say, "Hey, be kind," but we don't want to do it. It's not towards ourselves and not towards others. Who doesn't want to do it? The ego inside me. My motivational drive. And on the biggest scheme of things, I am way more than my motivational drop. This pattern of thinking and feeling and doing that I'm attached to, that I'm identified with, I'm way more than this. And this pattern is actually inhibiting my growth. So it's this juggle um, between being human together because we have these patterns, so it's this messy process of being human and how our patterns interact and having grace and kindness for one another within it. Thank you, Renee. As you said, in a relationship, we often expect our partner to change so we can be happy. Would you like to talk about this a little more? Oh, absolutely. Your partner is 100% responsible for your happiness. And if there's any unhappiness in you, you should blame them <laughs> at all times. <laughs> oh, Ilmarit. I think it's such an archetype in our psyche, you know, looking for the one that will make us happy or fulfill us. And we grow up with all these fairy tales. And in that sense, you know, they are not true. It's, I think it's Eckhart Tolle who said the purpose of relationship is not to make you happy. It is to make you conscious. And the beauty and gift of a relationship is because the patterns of your partner is actually clashing with yours. So it's in a way the gift of disrupting your patterns. You know, it's very uncomfortable. But if your own patterns does not get disrupted, you'll remain stuck in them for, for the rest of your life. So I think the most important thing, one of the most important things is to frame your partner as a partner in growth because you will trigger one another. And to, to see the other person as, oh, she's just, or he is just there to shine a light on where I need more healing, where I need more growth. Where is it that yeah, you know, I need to maybe expand my way of being and maybe there's some traits and aspects of the universe of life that I need to open myself to because I've been judging it and said, oh, I shouldn't have that or I shouldn't experience that. And so expanding my being to experience more and in that sense, we are there to stretch one another. So maybe slightly off point there, back to what to expect from my partner or where should I focus my, my attention? Each of us, we have to accept and make peace with the fact that we cannot control any human being. You can try, and you can try to influence them. But at the end of the day, to the extent we try to control others, we create stress and suffering for ourselves. 
And most of us are unconsciously doing it all the time. It's like almost like training a dog. It's like uh, I want to train my partner to, to say this and not say this and do this and not do that and in order for me to be happy. And, and as the spiritual teacher Byron Katie says, there are, there are only three types of business. There's the business of life and nature and there's the business of other people and there's your own business. The moment you get lost in the business of other people, you suffer. What do other people think? How do they behave? You know, how do they respond? If you are attached to them always behaving a certain way, you suffer. If you want life, nature to always play out in a certain way, if you want the weather to always be sunny, you're going to have a miserable life because some days there'll be wind or there'll be stormy weather or it'll rain. Life doesn't play out according to my fantasies. And in this sense, maybe the greatest gift we can give one another in a relationship is to say, I release you from the pressure of making me happy. I release you from the pressure of all my expectations. Yes, this is, this is what I like and want, but I realize you can't always keep that or always do that. And, yeah, I, I just want to, want to set you free. Because at the end of the day, we all want to be loved for who we are. And with the lens of the Enneagram, it's to see, wow, but the pattern of my partner and their drive and what moves them, it's not wrong. It's a legitimate part of the flow of our universe. And, and if I reject their pattern, I reject part of the, the flow of life. Actually, my will is being enriched. But it, it's difficult. I'm, I'm going to be honest here. It's, I know so many times I've been attached to my view now life will only be good when it happens like this so but to step away from that becomes liberating so you know only focus on what you can control that is your own actions and and your own perceptions and how do you choose to respond do you choose to reply combativeness with combativeness or do you decide hey no, i'm going to choose a different way right now and maybe have compassion for your partner oh my word Behind their reaction or anger, there's a panicked inner child that needs love and compassion. Who knows what might come up for you? Denise, you've now really shown that every couple experiences clashing motivational drives. Could you elaborate on this and perhaps give us some examples? No, absolutely, Mariette. Uh, maybe just quickly to say one thing that, I, that also just had in my mind is I think it's, it's a saying from you know, the contemplative priest Richard Draw that says, the wounds you don't transform, you transmit. Yeah, so how important the, the inner work is, whatever we don't own in ourselves, we, we will transmit to our partner. And so in terms of the individual healing journey, the greatest gift you can also give your partner is to do your own healing work and to face what you need to face within, you know, at the depth you're willing to meet yourself and your stuff, you, you're already unable to meet your partner. So from that, getting into examples, let's say, let's make it a bit of a stereotypical example, uh, if you don't mind. Let's say we've got a number eight male. The eight is the active controller and the drivers, I must always be strong and control. So I only feel okay. I will survive in this world as long as I show my strength to people. So I may never show weakness. I may never show vulnerability. 
with the number eight, with the number two helper in relationships. So have a female with the, the drive to help. And this helping drive is a caring, compassionate, heart-opening love. She just wants to take away Spain and make make life easier. So now the, the number two helper wife sees his Spain or sees his need, he needs help and she goes and makes a lot of loving, caring effort to make life easier and, and better for him. What happens? He's being threatened. Hey, for me to survive in this world, I need to be strong and in control and I'm not allowed to show any vulnerability. So anyone offering help or care or sensitivity, someone offering you know, loving compassion, I need to block that. I don't need that silly stuff. No, I need to. No, I'm strong and in control. So what happens with the wife? Oh, my word. Her drive is to be loving and helpful. And all her love and help is being rejected. So now you sit with two people. Both of their drives are being rejected. Both of their drives are being threatened. Because the one has to be strong and in control and not be vulnerable. And the other one wants to help through her vulnerability, through her loving compassion. And it's a brilliant example of, in a way, while we are in our pattern and identified with it, it blocks the flow of life and it blocks love. Because I have this unconscious list of things of how things should be to experience love. And actually what I'm holding on to is blocking love. My strategy to get love blocks love. This is the whole paradox of the, the Enneagram. And, and also, yeah, maybe one of its most liberating features. It's, it's a gateway to, to love and a gateway to mindfulness. You, um, let's maybe look at two other numbers. Well, a number, a number seven and a number four. And if I use now the, the example of a male and a female, and I think Marit, it's very important to just point out these drives are applicable no matter what sexuality or what gender you identify with. If you identify as a human, these patterns are relevant for you. And, and that's what I also love about the Enneagram is that it breaks down stereotypes of you know, men and women and sexuality and gender. You can kind of just play with this energy flow. So, so let's just say you know, it's a couple of, of any kind. The, the one person is a number seven and the, the one is a number four. So the number seven is the enthusiastic visionary. Life needs to be positive, full of options and full of fun. And while pursuing that, I'm not going to touch any pain or boredom or discomfort. I just need to keep things light and positive. The other person is the number four, the individualist. They're about being very authentic and having a deep, meaningful, significant life. And with that deep, meaning, significant life and being authentic, there's also the theme of emotional honesty. So they experience deep dark, sad emotions at times and they need and they feel this need to be expressive and voicing their sadness. When they authentically express it and the other person listens to them and understands it, the fool feels loved. Hey, this person cares for me. I express myself honestly and all my dark side I revealed here and this person listened and loved it and well I feel so loved right now. That doesn't happen because the seventh drive the enthusiastic visionaries, 
I need to block out all negative things and all sad emotions. <laughs> so very soon in the conversation where the other one is trying to, you know, express difficult sad emotions, the enthusiastic visionary will try to run away from that as soon as possible. It's like, okay, oh, this is sad emotion. Okay, why don't you do this or that? Or um, why don't you drink this pill? Or, um, oh, this glass of wine or, or whatever. But they'll come with it. <laughs> How can we change this around to positive thing as soon as possible? So you literally have two people then and their needs not, not being met because the one who wants to be acknowledged for being authentic, they're not getting listened to because the other one wants to go do other things and doesn't want to be bothered with their, their sad story. Whereas the seven wants to keep things positive, it's just feeling, oh my word, all this negative, sad stories is a threat to my survival. I need to get away from this as soon as possible. Now, it can be very dramatic and very heavy in that moment, but if we can step a few steps back like now, it's like, hmm, once again, it's normal. There will be times where you can't hear one another or where you can't understand one another. What are you doing to give yourself what you need now? Because quite often, our partner are also in a position of stress and life's challenges that in that moment, they don't have the capacity to meet us where we're at. And then I have to ask, okay, what in this moment I can feel hurt or threatened? What can I give to myself now? What do I need now? What do I need to do for myself now? And in that moment, release my partner for fulfilling my need in order for me to be happy. Do you maybe have, you know, maybe have another, another question or another scenario you want to play out, Mariette? Yes, I think they're so illuminating. Please, let's have one more. Okay. Let's say, let's say between a number one and a five. And I said, you know, the individuals could be from any, any gender or sexuality. So the number one is I, I must be right and I will do things in the right way. The number five is I must understand. I must investigate. I want to get deeper knowledge. I want to investigate it you know, from many different sides. So now they're having an argument and the number one says, this is the way, this is the right answer, this is how it should be. And... You know, for the number one, the reformer perfectionist to feel okay, you have to agree with him or her. The five again says, no, 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 I have to go investigate that. I can't just assume because you're saying that it must, must be right. I have to go do my own research and look through different perspectives and maybe eventually I'll agree with you. And then the perfectionist says, no, no, this is right and we must decide right now. So what happens in that moment the number one feels threatened because the other person is not agreeing with me and I must be right for me to feel okay and to feel loved and respected. You know, people must agree with me that I'm right. And the number five, the quiet specialist, the investigator, feels threatened because for me to survive, I must go obtain more information. I must thoroughly investigate all the options and I must get to my own conclusion, only once I've investigated from all sides, I'll reach a conclusion. And then it might be the same as my partners, but don't force me right now. I can't just take your word for it. I have to go investigate it. Whereas, you know, the number one is, oh, you are questioning that I'm right. You're threatening my survival. 
And the five, all they want to go do is I want to go investigate on my own terms in privacy and then I'll get back to you. So the number five feels steamrolled or controlled, um, their freedom taken away that they can do the investigative process that they need to do to get to that conclusion. You know, so we can play with any of the numbers and they can beautifully complement one another but especially in conflict situations and when both are stressed, it's very likely to pull in opposite directions. And it's normal. And you might want to feel that you want to, you know, strangle or murder your partner. Um, <laughs> but that, feel- <laughs> that feeling is normal too. And at the end of the day, you know, the question is, to what extent can you meet one another with kindness? And also as a couple, it's like, hey, we really struggle with this. Can we give ourselves the grace and compassion that this is the clash that happens, you know, within us? And can we bring kindness with it? Because sometimes a certain clash it will be like the thorn in the flesh of your relationship forever. But through mindfulness, do I measure and judge it all the time? Or do I bring curiosity and kindness to it? A completely different way of relating to it. Hey, this is part of what we need to deal with. And it's okay. It's actually not threatening to our survival. Thank you, Renir. Goodness, you have really broken down this very complex topic. And I so appreciate that you have shown how the whole Enneagram can help us understand ourselves better and then help us understand our partners and our relationships better. And then for bringing to it also the whole approach of coming from an angle of mindfulness. So thank you for unpacking this for us so beautifully. It's a pleasure, Marit, and I almost feel like I have to apologize. That's, that's my pattern. You know, I'm a conflict avoider and I want to keep the peace. And I, I feel like I've, I've given so much um, inconvenient news, but it's, I think it's good to, to face reality, but I'm, I'm, I'm smiling at my own dis- discomfort with, you know, I, <laughs> I didn't say all soothing, nice things to make everyone feel better. But, you know, getting to this moment of truth, it's so important um, when working with couples and for a couple to get to that place where, mm-hmm. listen, you know, we have to, both of us have unreasonable and irrational expectations of the other one and just be honest about it and making peace with it it is a massive improvement moving forward. And you know, also to very specifically clarify, I'm not saying make peace with any abuse. Please, um, that's mm-hmm. you know, if, if there is physical or definitely emotional abuse, please, you know, get the help or go away. So I'm not saying just, you know, change the perception in your in, in, in your head. No. But for most people, please check then before you do leave a relationship. Aren't I just um, avoiding my own projections? Aren't I just, you know, aren't I just avoiding my own issues in in leaving this? Yeah, there's there's no recipe for that. Every couple will have to decide what is it that we want to create, what do we want to cultivate, when is it a time to continue, and when is it a time to say, hey, maybe we can just be honest that it's not working, but we don't have to live in a massive drama full of blaming. We actually choose now that we want different things and we release one another. No, the Enneagram is a, once again, it's, it's a tool for sense-making and clarity. You know, as, as a coach, I help people with this mirror and from what people see, 
empowering people what to decide. Because at the end, we're all left with this choice. How do I choose to respond in this moment? Now, what thoughts do I choose to hold on to about my partner? Here's a judging thought appearing in my mind. Hmm, I see you. That's according to my pattern. Okay, I'm not going to flow with that. I'm choosing love and respect for my partner. Thank you. And speaking of coaching, where can listeners learn more about your work? My website is reflectioneer.com. So that's the word reflection and you add an E-E-R. And yeah, so that's my, my coaching website. So I work with individuals and couples and, and also teams and specifically with this becoming more conscious. And, and then from that place, what, you know, how do they choose to move forward in a, in a more wholesome and healing way? And then um, you know, I'm not actually that active on social media, but I have an Instagram account, which is you know, reflectioneer underscore coaching. And I'm also on Facebook, just Renier Cronier. And my, my Reflectioneer coaching logo is the, the profile pic. And I'll attach the link to your website to this podcast and the rest of the information will be in the podcast notes. Would you please give us your tips for inner well-being? Yes, Marit, sure. Uh, I'd say always remember you already are whole and complete in the depth of your being. Now, your ego pattern will always say only once this and that has changed, only then in the future at some point you'll be okay and you'll be happy and be worthy of love. No, you already are whole and complete right now. That's the first thing. Secondly, be kind to yourself always. I've referred to it in the session. It is the most difficult thing to do. Also, when you are very hard with yourself and you forget to be kind with yourself, also remember, be kind to yourself anyway. Yeah, then lastly, be grateful for life. Now, you and I are here in this universe with millions and billions of stars and galaxies. And, you know, we get so tied up. Or, or so many of us, and I'm, let me speak for myself, I also quite often get entangled up in small little things that bother me. And then I block the beauty of life and I block, you know, the love that's really here. So to be grateful for, for my life and, and to look around for things within my life, within my partner, within myself, friends, whatever. but Focus on being grateful. You know, you, you don't want to slide down on the measuring and judging path the mind can can take you on. So you already are whole and complete. Be kind to yourself and be grateful for life. Thank you, Renir. And then on a different note, may I ask you your fun question? <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> Renir, a little bird told me that you like walking in the Newlands forest. Hmm, that is correct. My question is, if you could exchange places with any living creature in the Newlands forest for one day, which creature would you like to be? Hmm, that is actually an easy question. Just a few months ago, I, for the first time ever, encountered a boom slump, like I think almost two, two meters long, and it was just an exquisite experience. So I would love to, you know, to be a boom slung 
you know, just <laughs> oh, I don't even know what the ride was, but just moving between the branches and the foliage, and uh, with with the, with the sun sunshine on my skin, and and hopefully not no eagle being nearby. Oh, that was much too easy. Next time I'll have to think of a much more difficult one. <laughs> I was actually seeing you that video clip. It's actually quite impressive. <laughs> mm. Thank you, Renier, and thanks again for unpacking this very complicated topic. You know, I've put off interviewing someone on the Enneagram for many years because I thought it, it would not be an easy task, and you've done it so well. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure, Marit. And, you know, I think as a disclaimer, and I probably should have said in the beginning, the Enneagram is so deep and vast. I've been working with it over you know, 12 years. And I'm still learning so much. And even this past year of things that opened up in terms of my own self-awareness that I think, oh, my word, how did I not see those things within myself and previously? So, so this was really just a kind of dipping the toe, toe in the water. And for all the listeners out there, there's, there's way, way more to explore. And, you know, to make a start, the easiest way to get hold of me is just through my website, send me an email, be interested in Enneagram assessment or mindfulness coaching, and, you know, happy to start a transformative journey with you. Thank you, Renir. And from my side, to our listeners, it was good of you to join us. I'd love you to subscribe to this podcast series and rate it where you download your podcasts. And if you found this episode helpful, please share it with someone you care about. Go to my website www.marietsneeman.co.za for this episode's podcast notes and for free articles and podcast episodes on how to live a happier life and have more fulfilling relationships. Do follow me on Facebook, just search for Mariette Sneeman, journalist. Calm, Clear and Helpful is compiled, hosted and edited by me with original music by Mart-Marie Sneeman. Catch you next Tuesday at 9 